Okay, gentlemen. What's your favorite time a director's blank check bounced? I, originally, I was going to come in here and talk about a movie I've talked about on this show before. I've talked about it on other shows before, um, which is uh, the the time that Barry Sonnenfeld's blank check bounced on uh, a movie that brings me a lot of joy, uh, both ironic and not, which is Wild Wild West. That was what I was going to talk about, and I was going to expound on that. But then this week, or I'm sorry, this, maybe two weeks ago, uh, and Tom knows where this is going because he's heard me talk about this a lot. I watched something that was um, truly revelatory. And this is not a case of a blank check bouncing and me watching it and going, oh, what a weird, dumb thing. But instead, something I watched and went, this is amazing. Um, this is this is beautiful. And, and it never should have failed, which is I watched um, Francis Ford Coppola's One from the Heart. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola obviously had one of the most amazing runs that a director will ever have. Godfather, Conversation, Godfather Part 2, Apocalypse Now. Just an amazing run. He decides he's going to go outside the studio system and make his own studio and, and, and with Zoetrope, this amazing, beautiful vision to basically be uh, an artistic community outside the studio system. Um, that paid everybody well and had educational programs for kids and everything. Um, and he bet the entire farm on this grand studio musical um, with with Terry Garr and Harry Harry Dean Stanton and Raul Julia all built on sound stages. It's a musical where nobody sings, but all the songs are performed by by Tom Waits or written by Tom Waits. It's it, it was a colossal failure. Um, made barely any money, almost no awards recognition, and bankrupted Zoetrope, and Coppola had to spend the rest of his career making commercial hits, um, stuff like The Outsiders, and then starting a winery just to try and financially recover from it. And and it's infamous. It's up there with those things like Heaven's Gate or, or Waterworld, these things. It's like, it's code word for the blank check bouncing, for, for the hubristic failure. But it's a beautiful story um and 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 incredible cinematography incredible set design incredible color moving and the ending gets me and i i i loved it i just bought it i just watched it again today um i think it's incredible uh one from the heart is extraordinary and uh yeah that's that's my favorite time a director had a big blank check and it it bounces is this remarkable film at the start of the 80s, that is almost a vision of what could have been had had things gone a different way. This is going to be a surprise to Mike, but my pick is uh, Streets of Fire. Walter Hill is one of my favorite filmmakers. Uh, he's a foundational uh, part of my cinematic voice. Uh, he was just coming off of 48 Hours, which was a huge hit. Uh, he'd already had The Warriors before that, but there was you know one or two in between there that weren't huge, gigantic hits or whatever. Uh, 48 Hours was Monster, and uh, he got a uh, blank check, and he wanted to make this movie, Streets Fire, similar to uh, One from the Heart, all on sound stages. It's all fake. Everything is all on sound stages. Uh, it's got a great look. It's got one of the just greatest soundtracks of all time. Um, I just, I love it, the, the music so much. Similar, it's a musical that's not really a musical. It's all like Jim Steinman songs and Bonnie Tyler and shit. <laughs> it's this weird, like 1950s greaser, but also 80s, like 
prog not prog rock but like 80s pop rock mixed together and there's you know diane lane is this rock star willem dafoe's a greaser biker who's, uh michael perret is like the kind of man with no name but who's like he, it's just it's this weird melange of 50s 80s pulp storytelling rock and roll all of this and it it just didn't connect at the time but it's steadily grown in esteem over time it's got a big cult following now it got a great deluxe uh blu-ray release from shout factory uh that i own and i love so much i I throw it on all the time to just rock out and just let it play in the background um i think it's one of the most purely entertaining popcorn movies i've ever seen i love everything it does and i genuinely think it has one of the greatest endings of any movie i've ever seen uh it almost i've said this maybe to Mike or I don't know, just in general, that the ending is like this big rebuke to uh, shit like Greece, where it's like, oh, you got to change who you are to be with the guy. You got to like become like this dirty slob of a person to be with the guy and get love. And it just rejects that completely. And I love it so much. Um, uh, as someone who's, you know, been, you know, who, who feels like, I don't know, I, I, I connect so much to that ending and that, idea of letting the person you love go because it's actually the best thing for them because you know you would actually just ruin their life um clearly i'm a romantic but uh streets of fire is my favorite walter hill movie it's one of my favorites of all time similar to mike said about one from the heart it's kind of like a a glimpse into what could have been if the 80s didn't become as uh simplistic and kitty friendly as it it, it did it did become uh uh I, I love streets of fire a lot and uh i think uh every everybody should just see it streets of fire just fucking rules <laughs> kick back relax and settle in next to your favorite symbolic perpetually rocking cradle because we're talking 1916's intolerance here on you're missing out with special guest michael caputo our guest today is one of the founders of the pod clubhouse podcast network and the managing editor of Pop Culture Review, uh, Mike Caputo, joins us to talk about D.W. Griffith's Intolerance. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thank you, guys. I, what a gift to be able to watch this movie. Uh, actually, and watch it kind of twice, which is its own little story. So. A gift. Oh. That's certainly a, a way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I watched the Amazon Prime version, because I have Amazon Prime, so why not take the free version? Turns out that's like 40 minutes shorter, 30 to 40 minutes shorter than the, all the other versions. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I ended up watching this movie kind of one and a half times. So it was, <laughs> it was awesome. Well, I'm I'm so glad you came by for this. Uh, I can admit, you know, normally I, I ask folks, uh, why'd you pick this film? But in this case, I know uh, why you picked it, because I was kind of part of that genesis. Um, you guys, uh, you uh, you and your, your co-host. Yep, Caroline uh, Daly. Caroline, yep. yep, were kind enough to have me on your show, uh, interview the podcast. As of us recording this, that came out uh, this earlier this week. By the time this comes out, that came out a couple months ago. Please go back and find that, folks. It was a lot of fun. You guys had me on to talk about it. And I mentioned that uh, we were having difficulty finding a guest for Intolerance, which is an interesting sort of phenomenon, I, I think, with this particular film, because some of the other hot-button films that we have in the first year, people didn't want to touch because of the films. You know, Gone with the Wind, The Searchers, you know, have controversial subject matter 
with intolerance as we'll get into it's it's less about the film itself uh so much as the person who made it and the other thing that this person made so i mentioned how difficult it was to find a guest for intolerance and then i think we had we had finished recording and maybe 20 minutes later 30 minutes later you messaged me and went you know what i'll do it Let's do this. <laughs> yeah. You, you, you took the leap on that, and I appreciate that. Well, one, I like a good challenge. And two, I, I the only reason for the gap was I was like, I got to have a better understanding of what I'm getting myself into. So I did some like quick quick researching. I was like, I could get through this. It sounds like an interesting enough premise uh, you know, to, to dive into it. So, And this it's- is a total blind spot for me. This this era of film, I mean, D.W. Griffith, other than knowing about like Birth of a Nation, he's a total blind spot for me. So it was it was an educational uh, couple of days boning up for this. So. It's yeah, there's so much to get into with this. Uh, it's a film with a lot to explore. But before we get into that, just real quick, why don't you uh, tell everybody a little bit more about yourself and uh, what, I mean, not just what you do with Pop Culture Review and Pod Clubhouse, but but what your relationship is to cinema. Uh, sure. So I was raised as like a pop culture junkie. You know, I was uh, I was a typical 80s kid. Both my parents worked. I uh, had a, a, an old grandmother who kind of raised me and my sisters. And so I just spent hours and hours every day in front of the television. Uh, you know, I had I, I had HBO before I had cable. Uh, you know, so I was watching movies, I was playing video games, and I was watching literally everything on on TV. And that kind of never stopped. It was it not only raised me, it just kind of formed who I am. And so I, I yeah, it, it just became part of my entire persona. So, you know, fast forward, uh, you know, 30 years, 20 years, and you know, I wanted to write, I, I enjoy writing. Uh, so I started a TV review blog, you know, this is in like the age of like lost when everyone started to blog and do TV recap shows. So I started a website. I was just doing TV recaps. And I always wanted to get into movies and, and talking about movies and, and being a movie critic. But I, I never felt I had, like, the chops. I didn't have, like, the background. I had, like, the really popcorn knowledge of movies, but not, like, the cinema knowledge for movies, you know? So now as I continue to get older, it's, like, one of those things I'm trying to kind of go back and backfill. So doing like thinking about movies like this and, and where it kind of all began is is good for me. It's kind of part of my own education. In that case, let's get into it because there's uh, normally I, I, I just read the quote from the registry, but I have a couple uh, things I want to read to get us started, especially with something like this. There's so many different ways to approach this film. So so let's start with why the National Film Registry selected this film. A sprawling epic that traverses time and space, D.W. Griffith's Intolerance, whose full title has alternately been listed as Intolerance, Love's Struggle Throughout the Ages, and Intolerance, A Sun Play of the Ages, tells the story of men and women throughout history, specifically a woman in ancient Babylon, a group in Judea, a Huguenot couple in 1572 France, and a woman in modern times, all of whom encounter some form of intolerance. Griffith made Intolerance as a direct response to the negative public reaction to the overt racism depicted in The Birth of a Nation, which was released a year earlier. Notable for its elaborate, expansive sets and complex story structure, which was achieved through cross-cutting, Intolerance is considered one of the masterpieces of the silent era. As with Birth of a Nation, Griffith introduced new cinematic techniques in Intolerance that are now considered commonplace in today's motion picture industry. So that's what the registry had to say. Now, 
Let's talk about what Frank Capra had to say. When this great art form was created, it flowered in one generation. Just one generation. From the Great Train Robbery, which lasted ten minutes, to Griffith's Intolerance, which was three hours, and everything else that was added, sound, colors, are all embellishments. And let's talk about what Kenneth Anger had to say about the film in his tell-all gossip novel, uh, or gossip book, Hollywood Babylon. White elephants, the god of Hollywood wanted white elephants, and white elephants he got. Eight of them, plastered mammoth perched on mega mushroom pedestals, lording it over the colossal court of Belshazzar, the pasteboard Babylon built beside the dusty tin Lizzie trail called Sunset Boulevard. Griffith, the movie director as god, was riding high, high as he'd ever go over Illusion City, whooshing up a hundred-foot-high elevator camera tower, giant megaphone poised to shout the command to the thousands below, the camera, action, to bring it all alive, Griffith's vision of Babylon. And there it stood for years, stranded like some gargantuan dream beside Sunset Boulevard, long after Griffith's great leap into the unknown, his sun play of the ages intolerance had failed. Long after Belshazzar's court had sprouted weeds and its walls had begun to peel and warp in abandoned movie set disarray. After the Los Angeles Fire Department had condemned it as a fire hazard, still it stood. Griffith's Babylon, something of a reproach and something of a challenge to the burgeoning movie town. Something to surpass. Something to live down. So, I, I chose those quotes along with the registry quote because that's two very different perspectives on the film neither negates the other but it's just two very different ways to look at this particular project uh as it notes this was dw griffith's follow-up to the massive success of his uh original blockbuster Uh, i think we have to acknowledge the success that was uh the birth of a nation and the uh stain that it leaves on cinematic history uh, for its innovation and, of course, for uh, the horrors, the real-world horrors that it, it brought in. And he followed that up with Intolerance, which can either be viewed as, as Frank Cap reviews it, uh, the ultimate triumph of the silent era and the uh, completion of the building of the cinematic language, or you can look at it through Kenneth Anger's perspective and uh, a product of hubris... That, that led to his downfall, led to Griffith's downfall and the uh, ultimate allure of the blank check that is Tinseltown. Now, Mike, you had not seen this before. Were you at all familiar with D.W. Griffith's work prior to this? I was, fam- I mean, I'm familiar with The Birth of a Nation. You know, it's, it's just one of those things that's just out there. You know, it's this giant racist track that also happened to do things first. Uh, you know, it's this very complicated history with it. Uh, so, so I, I knew that, I, and I know its role and its place in history, and uh, and and the negative connotation with D.W. Griffiths because of it. I didn't know about intolerance before, kind of diving into. Uh, I, I didn't really know much about the man himself before diving into this movie. So, uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting follow up piece for sure. Um, I, I think there's a middle ground from those quotes. I think this movie succeeds in a couple of things. I don't know that they succeed where Griffiths wanted them to. I don't know that it is the rebuttal to his critics that he had hoped it would be, but it does some things 
well. And I think it is responsible or set a tone for a lot of things that would come after it for the next, you know, hundred plus years. So now Tom, was this, what, what, was this your first time viewing intolerance and what's your background with Griffith? My first time watching intolerance. My background with Griffith is we had to watch that piece of shit birth of a nation in college and, uh, really fucking sucked, but, uh, you dealt with it. You could put your stuff aside and say, well, I guess we had to wade through this muck of shit to get cinema to where it was. But, you know, I mean, right. even if you take away the racial shit that is the defining aspect of that movie, it's like a, it's just a bad movie. It's like, right. It's just like not well told. It's overlong. It's, 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 it's thesis. Like, it's just, it's just pure propaganda, and it's just kind of just not even, like, fun to watch from a historical perspective. Like, because like, you watch Intolerance, and you go, oh, he's responding to Birth of a Nation and how people react to Birth of a He's trying to, like, I don't know, I guess apologize for it. But then you you read what he said, which is, I made Intolerance to uh, go after my critics because this is what happens when you attack people for their beliefs. And I'm like, what? There's a... There's a great quote about that exact thing. I like. I don't know if you you found this when you were looking for it, but he, he wrote this article, the motion pictures and the witch burners. Mm-hmm. Did you come across this? He did that. Yeah. Well, if you want to talk about that one, and I'm going to talk about his pamphlet that he did to kind of promote this film, but but, but take it away with yours first. Yeah. So it, uh, in this book, uh, D. W. Griffith's Intolerance, his uh, its genesis and its vision by William Drew, which is kind of like a history of the book and some background on it. They, they pull this quote, and uh, this is Griffith's writing. He says, The witch burners who burn through the censorship of the motion picture today when they have nothing left but the charred and blackened embers of that which promised once to be a beautiful art, when this grisly work is finished, where will they turn their attention next? I mean, this uh, intolerance is just this big butt hurt like reaction to him saying, so- not understanding why people didn't like intolerance or criticize it. So let me jump on that real quick, because I think we, just for our listeners, we have to touch on Birth of a Nation because this is the follow-up to it, but we're not going to get too into Louise with that one because that is a film that is inducted later in the registry, so that will be in our third season, and we'll, we'll deal with that when we get to that. But with Intolerance, I think the thing that's interesting is when I first uh, started looking into D.W. Griffith, and the information that I got on D.W. Griffith was coming from... Uh, classes or um, old biographies of Griffith and documentaries about Griffith um, and Lillian Gish's autobiography because Lillian Gish lived well into her her autumn years. Um, When you find those, they all write about Griffith as an artist and a pure artist. And you kind of just have to, reconcile when you come at it from that angle reconcile with the idea of oh he's he was a guy who who made important films and innovative films who was also um a hateful racist who believed in these things so strongly that he made uh the birth of a nation and then was so upset by the reaction to it and felt so um you know, felt such intolerance from the public reaction that he made intolerance. But the more I look into it, and the more I have looked into it, not just, you know, from from watching more of his films, but from reading other biographies of him, and particularly reading some of his own stuff, 
Uh, Mike mentioned that in an article, but in addition to that, when Griffith was out drumming up interest in Intolerance, he had a pamphlet that he wrote. Now, remember, this is the turn of the century. This is 1915, 1916. Yeah. Yep. Pamphlets were a big thing back then. We don't appreciate how many pamphlets were a big deal. They were the, uh, you know, they were the blogs of, of their day. Uh, and as such, a lot of lunatics could just write pamphlets and hand them out. Lord knows uh, Charles Gateau liked to hand out pamphlets before he shot Garfield. But uh, Griffith had a pamphlet called The Rise and Fall of Free Speech in America and leads it with saying, well, why censor the motion picture? It's the learning man's university. The motion picture is the greatest antidote to war because it can educate. And goes on to say, I believe one of the quotes is, that a man of the mental caliber of the captain of police of Chicago can tell us two million... I'm sorry, uh, that a man of the mental caliber of the captain of police of Chicago can tell two million American people what they shall and shall not go see in a, in the way of a moving picture. They tell us we can't show crime in a motion picture. He gets very incensed about censorship, but what you come to realize when you read that pamphlet, uh, and it's funny that I read that pamphlet uh, on the day that some, I don't, I'm not even gonna fucking remember the name. I'll be honest. And and people listening will have forgotten about this by the time it comes out. But some conservative talk show host on on Fox News just went after Harry Styles for wearing a dress and making it a whole culture war thing. And you realize when you read this pamphlet that Griffith wrote, and and you also realize that he, I mean, you listen to people who talk about Griffith in the in the PBS did a three part docu series on him. And you hear people talk about, oh, Griffith wasn't a racist. Uh, no, in fact, you know, we, we, we had some, uh, there were some black people on set for, for Birth of a Nation, you know, performing some song, and he, he loved it, and he was, he was friendly with them and all that. And you realize that the thing with Griffith, and I think the thing with Intolerance, and I, the thing with his narrative, that he made it in response to the intolerant treatment he got for Birth of a Nation, it's, it's bullshit. Oh, clearly. It's, oh, yeah. It's, yeah. And I it's, mean, and you, because this movie has nothing re- to do with that. It's like, no. it's yeah. so funny. Like, this Death is- of the Author and all that, but like, it's so, like, if you want to get metatextual about it and you see those comments and you watch the movie, you go, no. You, if that yeah. was your goal, you failed completely. The weird thing about D.W. Griffith to wrestle with is not what I used to have to wrestle with. Um, And, and allow me to, to finish this thought because it sounds bad out of context, but, but the thing I used to have to wrestle with, wrestle with is. The father of American cinema is a, a racist, a bitter, hateful racist. And now the thing you have to wrestle with, Griffith, or I have to wrestle with, is that the best case scenario is that the father of American cinema is a bitter racist. Because the alternative is that he didn't hold those beliefs, that he didn't give a flying fuck about the things that he espouses in Birth of a Nation, and he made this film that revived the clan, and he brought so much hate and real-world pain, suffering, and death, and did it completely cynically just to sell tickets. And that is the worst possible legacy uh, to leave on American cinema, but it is also a thing that is still keeping yeah. the blood flowing in this industry today. It's maybe the most American aspect, though, yeah. of it, though, right? I mean... I, I, there's so much of this where it's the progressive era, you know, big capitalist is the villain, which is one of his quote unquote intolerances here. But yeah. you're, you're, I think you're hundred percent right though. He was, he was just cashing in on the thought of the day. 
and, and and I think that's a lot of his thing is he turns around if he's not a racist and if he was just a money, you know, a money monster, uh, you know, trying to bank on something that was a popular thought. Yeah. I mean, that persists still today, which is a problem. I mean, uh, he's he's 19, the early 1900s version of Dinesh D'Souza. He's just this crazy propagandist who may or may not or, or even Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson, just one of these craven whores that right. just even if they're not explicitly burning crosses and you know killing black people on the street the fact that they can look past it just to make money it's like well you still you still do just suck see as people. here's the thing i would not even call gw griffith a propagandist i think that the the, the proper way to describe griffith me is and i mean this in the in not the most praised connotations but is a provocateur all that what he's doing, despite actually innovating cinema and undeniably having a really good eye for shots and a really good eye for visual storytelling, um, despite that, he is also a a deliberately he's doing things just to shock people. He's doing things uh, specifically because you're not supposed to do them. He's doing them specifically because he's going to get a rise out of people. And he's, you know, I guess my frustration when it comes to a lot of artists who are considered provocateurs, um, even more recent filmmakers who do that kind of shtick, um, whether it's a Gaspar Noé or, uh, or or when Lars von Trier said positive things about Hitler at Cannes, however long ago that was. Uh, maybe I'm dating myself there. But it's just like you're just doing this to get a rise out of people. It's it's There's no honesty to it. There's no belief in in it and it's what's frustrating about it is that there is actual the war especially in the case of intolerance which is such a foundational film and such an ambitious film is that the work itself stands on its own and unlike some of the more problematic films we dealt with the season is not in itself heavily problematic it's not it's no it's the fact that it's just attached to right. It's almost like I, I think about okay. So here's here's the thing that kind of troubles me uh, is that who here uh, on Mike uh, saw the Greatest Showman? Me. You did, Mike. Y- yep, I did. Okay, I I fell down a P.T. Barnum rabbit hole when I was young. Oh, that's a problem if you're trying to enjoy that movie. <laughs> I I guess I kind of found myself frustrated by it because P.T. Barnum was not a good person. You don't say. No, 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 no. I kept getting thrown by the fact that I'm like, he, uh, you know, that the movie paints him as just a wonderful guy who is friendly to all of his sideshow. Right. Uh, people, and it's like... And but, not a monster. <laughs> right. Yeah, Who whose first quote-unquote act is he owned a human being. Right. It was his first major attraction was a woman named Joyce... Uh, Joyce Heth, who was an African-American woman who... Uh, told stories and people met her and talked to her and interacted with her. He, she was in, I guess, seventy, eighty year old woman who had, you know, lived through, uh, you know, slavery and all. And Barnum had her lie and say she was one hundred and sixty one years old and the nurse of George Washington, and then had her autopsy publicly performed and all. That. And the thing that's frustrating about that, when I think about it, not frustrating but horrifying, is the idea of like. 
this woman had actual stories that she could tell that would be fascinating. Right. And yet it's it's shrouded in all this bullshit. With intolerance, the, the most exhausting thing is it there is so much to get into with just the film itself. The work could stand on its own, but it had its very own P.T. Barnum, who was just trying to make a spectacle and and I think had real, genuine, sincere artistic ambitions, right. but also matched those artistic ambitions with being the naughty provocateur, being the, oh, I, I shouldn't do that, oh, you know, so this, and so this forth. Is, but this is, I think you're raising a good point, though, and this is a conversation. It's one of the things that makes intolerance interesting because it was it was controversial because of the, of the birth of a nation in 1916 and, and the critics initially liked it and then they panned it. And then, you know, it's come to have this place of, of renown and, and it's kind of an honored film, but like we have to do so much in 2020, you have to kind of separate the art and the artist. And, you know, the greatest showman is a great example of it. I wrote a very long tract about that movie when it came out, because I took the position that, separate who P.T. Barnum was from the movie so that when you watch the movie, you could actually get good messages out of it. Because the movie actually has great messages about inclusion. It has great messages about kind of living your dreams. It has great messages about we all have a place in the world, right? But that becomes problematic when you try and put it in the the square peg in the round hole of, of history and who P.T. Barnum was. Because I... I... If I may, and I'm sorry, I think no, I think my thing is we've talked about this on other shows about other topics. I think that we we struggle now when it comes to you know who 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 we are as a society. Really struggle with the with the idea of trying to square that great art from an aesthetic standpoint can also have bad intentions, or that bad people can also do great things, or or. Just because somebody's on the right side of history on a particular thing does not mean they're also a good person. Or that you're on the right side of history and trying very hard to make art that is right and correct. And yeah, we're all on the right side here. It doesn't mean you made a winner. Right. It's, you know, it's it's a, it's a struggle. I mean, you know, uh, by the time this comes out, people will already be talking about the Oscars and whatever is getting nominated. But, you know, will they? <laughs> I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about like, you know, whether it's because uh, a podcast that we all listened to uh, recently covered Forrest Gump and we're struggling with kind of the way that Robert Zemeckis pit, uh, depicts some of the anti-Vietnam activists as assholes. And uh, a film this year, the reason I bring up the Oscars, uh, Aaron Sorkin's The Trial of the Chicago 7 depicts some of the Chicago 7 as smug or belligerent assholes. And the argument is like, I don't understand why you do that. We know now, with the benefit of hindsight, that they're right. We know that they're right and that Vietnam is wrong and they should be protesting. And I think the thing that we kind of need to be able to do when we approach art is the idea of like recognizing it is possible that people can be doing a good thing or be on the right side of history or have the right ideas or the right ambitions and also not be a good person person right or that there can be this duality and to grapple with dw griffith and his contributions to cinema and his place his undeniable place in the evolution of cinema is to have to accept that duality 
and well, and to have to accept that conflict. It's it's so fundamentally an American thing. I mean, I I, I know the world world cinema has a lot of great contributions and all that, and has helped uh, you know push cinema forward. But I you know, cinema is I feel like the way even like the world like you know Mike likes these the French uh, new wave filmmakers, and they talk they you know they were inspired by America, blah blah blah, and all that stuff stuff. Kurosawa was inspired by America and all, I, cinema is an American in, uh, thing. We, it's like the, the last thing we make. It's one of the pu- only purely American art forms. And it, it's only fitting that the father of cinema is a racist asshole. I mean, Right, it, it, and, and it's a conversation that we're always having, right? We're literally going back to the beginning, right? To the father of cinema, we're having this conversation. I mean, shit, two months ago, God, four months ago at this point, because time means nothing anymore. <laughs> we had we had to have, uh, you know, every wokester on Twitter have to like, oh, well, did you actually know the founding fathers were racist? Yes, thank you. That's not what ha- Hamilton's about, though. Like, they kind of get yeah. into it, but it's also like recontextualizing a story. But it's like, America, yes. Right, right. America has a broken, fucked up backstory, and it's all about become it pushing forward and being better than what got us here. But acknowledging what got us here, and yes, Griffith sucks. There is, without question, D.W. Griffith sucks. But also, intolerance has nothing to do with how much he sucks. Surprisingly, so. So much so that right. the story, the you know, the modern day at the time story of the the the, the young girl and the the baby and the guy who's going to be you know killed, uh, you know, he's found guilty and all that shit. That's like a like if I didn't know this was a D.W. Griffith movie, this feels like a socialist, anti-capitalist, pro like union movie. And I'm like, this fucking guy made Birth of a Nation, right? Well, but there's a perfect through line there, though. I mean, you, you mentioned Hamilton. The musical versus the founders. You have to acknowledge who the founders are, but you can still enjoy Hamilton and the messages. It's the same with B.T. Barnum and The Greatest Showman. It's the same with there are parts of there are parts of intolerance that have you know good messages and 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 are still true today. You know the the idea of the rich kind of go about their lives without uh, or and the powerful go about their lives without kind of regard to the consequences to the everyman, right? Without getting tied up and acknowledging this is D.W. Griffiths, but being able to acknowledge that, but still take something away from the movie. I mean, it's kind of surprising that this doesn't have the most problematic uh, Christ story, because if uh, D- if anyone was going to uh, make a movie, uh, you know, you would expect the D.W. Griffith, the Birth of a Nation guy to maybe get anti-Semitic with the Jesus story. No, and in fact, had uh, rabbis on set, right, to ensure that the yeah. wedding Akina scene was done and in hell. accordance with Hebraic law. And you hell, know, he, so. he he was told that the uh, the crucifixion scene, he, the way he shot it, uh, there's too many Jews around the crucifix, not enough right. Roman soldiers. And he said, oh, okay, burned that footage and reshot it to have more Romans there. So it's not this anti-Semitic screed of just, oh, well, the Jews got Christ. Those those pesky Jews. It, it, it is like Mike is saying, he's just a huckster. But with, he's trying, like his art is actually trying, at least in intolerance, to be honest and earnest and say something. But his huckster bullshit on Birth of a Nation and his huckster shit selling intolerance 
has tainted what is otherwise a not problematic movie. Right. It's it's interesting you mention that, Tom, and I, I want to touch on that in two ways. One, when when Tom brought up that you know his his assertion that that cinema is uh, you know, fundamentally American art form, what I think is interesting is that. D.W. Griffith didn't just make myths about his particular films. The myth, the myth that he creates around, well, intolerance was about my critics being intolerant of me. And even in his pamphlet, The Rise and Fall of Free Speech, you know, we talk about the multiple storylines in this film, and Tom mentioned the Christ narrative. I think the reason that he faithfully makes a Christ narrative and the massacre of St. Bartholomew is that in his pamphlet about free speech, he mentions both of those, arguing that, well, if... The censors, because at the time there were censors in certain states who were saying you couldn't depict vice in movies. You couldn't depict anybody committing a crime. You couldn't yeah. depict any violence because it was unsavory. And him saying, well, then you couldn't tell the tale of Christ and you couldn't show the massacre of St. Bartholomew. And it's like, oh, he's laying this out. Right. Whether whether this, I don't know which came first, chicken or egg, whether this was prior to the film or, or after, but he's just laying out there like, oh, the reason I'm going to depict Christ and the reason I'm going to depict the massacre of St. Bartholomew is so that when they when Chicago or New York censors my movie because of the violence I can turn around and go you want to censor the story of Christ you know like that kind of thing he's doing that to be able to have another firestorm and what it makes me but but to Tom's point about you know the American or from that myth, Griffith is responsible even for that myth, and because he is so much about building himself up. I mean, you know, uh, Kenneth Anger in that quote talks about the god of Hollywood and how Griffith made these stories and made this mythology around himself so much to the point that he suggests that he invented the close-up right. and that he invented uh, so many of these techniques. And even that quote from the registry is like he invented all these techniques, and now, you know, thirty years later his film historians can go actually he stole that from this that this european film did this that this european film did that and the entire genesis of the babylon stuff in 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 uh intolerance that gives hollywood babylon the book its title all of this with the elephants and all of that is lifted right almost exactly from an italian film from Kabiria. From earlier in the, yeah, Kabiria. Yeah. Which, you know, Tom uh Tom and I are both Italian. Mike, you're you're Italian as well. I am. Um so let me be uh everybody's Italian relative that just does the So you know they try and pretend the movies is American. No, Italians did it first. Italians they do it first. They, they do it good and they do it better. They do it better. Uh, and Paisan had a great um, name you know. Giovanni Pastroni. He had a great great name, the guy <laughs> who made Kabiria. So yeah, and, right? ju- and just like the year uh, before this, right? It comes out, or two years before it was this comes out. It was 1914th, two years before. But look, everybody took from Kabiria. I mean, you know, the, the look right. of, if you ever get a chance to see Kabiria, the, the statue of Moloch ends up getting adopted into um, uh, 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 Metropolis. But what I think is so interesting about that is that D.W. Griffith creates the myth of, not just the myths around the American movie uh, and some of the myth that is Hollywood, he even by striking out and leaving Biograph pictures, because he had originally worked for Biograph. Really honed his craft there, it seemed like, you know, yeah. Biograph. Yeah. He started as an actor and then took on the role of director. And at that point, not only did you not give a shit about directors, 
you could give a fuck about directors other than maybe Max Sennett. But even then, like, you know, that was just his name on the company. You couldn't give a shit about directors. Even the actors themselves didn't have names. They were just the Vitagraph girl. Griffith breaks away from Biograph and starts putting his name on everything. And DG at the bottom of his car is right. his title cards. Yep. He creates the myth of the auteur. You know, I mean, he obviously didn't use the word auteur, but the idea of like the director as king comes from Griffith. And it's as much as he innovated the actual cinematic art form, what Griffith's biggest contribution is, and especially with something like Intolerance, his biggest contribution is creating how we understand and talk about movies to this day. I mean, look, all of us, uh, you know, I, I don't know about, uh, you know, Mike, you, you've written about uh, film and, and television, and Tom and I have have been on our share of sets, right? Yeah. And, and we know for a fact how much each different role in production affects a film. We know full well from being on set how many cases there can be where the person listed as a director barely does anything, right? Right, And there have been so many cases where we've even had to step in and we've suggested things or thrown things out there on shoots that have made it into the film and people compliment it and they give all the praise to the director. And we do it too because we're still buying into this idea of the director as God because of Griffith and the, and the cult of personality he cultivated and the, and the myths that he created. I'm so sorry if that was a bit of a tirade, but I just really wanted to, to touch on... No, no, I mean, that... I mean, that ties it into the Americanness of the art form. It's that it's building a myth and that, yeah, he he stole from the Italians. He stole, you know, he wasn't doing he didn't necessarily come up with a lot of these things. But there is something to be said for being the one to tie a bunch of ideas into one package. Absolutely. That hits the mainstream. I mean, Birth of a Nation, for as shameful as it fucking is, was essentially the first blockbuster it was the it was kind of the movie that made it that oh movies can be an art form tell a long form story they don't have to just be these 10 minute things or whatever you know he pushed it and then with intolerance again he pushed it with the cross cutting four different stories that really have nothing to do with each other and you just jump back and forth between them to make your grand thematic point by the end i mean even even for a movie in you know say 1916 it's black and white using color to delineate yeah. each segment so you know which one you're watching i mean he's he's pushing things forward and and some of it works and some of it doesn't work and some of it works and some of it doesn't work some of it works some of it doesn't work i mean you watch it 104 years later uh not the best uh, viewing experience but uh, you, 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 from a historical standpoint, you go, okay, yeah, you know, you see where this is coming from. It's uh, rough, but you see it. You see the innovation. You see where where it's coming from, and that's America. You know, that's it, it's the myth, but it's also he did it. I mean, it's <laughs> me and Mike. Well, me particularly in college used to make fun of a, a particular friend of ours who was a Hitchcock fanatic, where I would just say. Oh, our teacher said uh, Hitchcock was a thief, which is like, yeah, okay, Hitchcock took shit from other filmmakers all around the world, but you're not going to watch those filmmakers and go, oh, that's that's Hitchcock. He just did it himself. No, he, he you take the flavor and you make your thing and you make a new thing. We see it today. Right. Quentin does it, you know? Yeah, I mean, like, I and I, I agree with you on Quentin Tarantino, especially, I mean, 
the other night I was watching uh, Jean-Luc Godard's Made in USA, which uh, is a film from which Quentin clearly drew a lot of elements that would become Kill Bill. However, there is no world where I'd say, Tom, you should watch Made in USA because you like Kill Bill, and he's going to go, you're right, I had a blast. They're very different works. Yeah, no, I mean, it, that's 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 art. I mean, it's... It, there's the you know there's the saying you know there's only seven kinds of stories it's just how yeah. you tell them i mean that's it's it's the truth you know cinema even in the most experimental forms of cinema is storytelling it's just how you tell the story i mean people get up in arms these days about oh we're already on a third spider-man it's like all right but like how many times are we gonna see fucking kira knightley slink out in a, in a ridiculous dress because it's a uh, uh it's uh, Pride and Prejudice again, or whatever. You know, uh, how many times are we going to see uh, Hamlet told on stage? How many times are we going to see Benedict Cumberbatch shuffle his ass out on stage to play Frankenstein? Stories, if you you know, some of these stories are elemental. Sto- storytelling itself is elemental. It's it's throughout time. I mean, Mike just watched, and I just picked up because of blank check. Fucking Beowulf. Robert Zemeckis <laughs> made a CGI nightmare version of right. the first story. And you're not going to watch this movie and go, oh, it's exactly like this specific translation. Yo, J.R.R. Tolkien's translation of Beowulf is exactly like Robert Zemeckis' Beowulf. No, you're not. You're not going to say Mel Gibson's Hamlet is the same as uh, Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet. You're not going to do it because... Or Olivier's Hamlet. Or Olivier's Hamlet. Yeah, I mean... Or you're not going to (laughs) say Orson Welles' Othello is not the same as Denzel Washington's Othello. That's not a thing that anybody would fucking say. It's it's how you do it and the time you tell it and the way cinema is working at the time and all this shit. It's just you, you, cinema is excavation. Basically, it's preservation. It's looking at the past and seeing how we got here. And I think it's one of those things where we've talked about before, like Gone with the Wind or The Searchers from this season, at least. And we'll get into it in Birth of a Nation in a, in a little bit. But these movies existed. They were made at a time, and they are relics of the time they were made. So as much as Birth of a Nation fucking sucks, it is representative of that time because it was a success. I mean, we can't right. relitigate that it was a success. Like, the, the, the money talks. People saw it. A lot of people, uh, unfortunately, liked it. So much so, a annoying organization came rose out of the ashes again because of this fucking movie. I think that's the I I gotta say, and I'm not a pleasure. I just think that is the only time that the the KKK has been classified as an annoying organization. <laughs> I mean, with a phoenix like uh, tint to it. <laughs> but, but I think you're right, though. I, it, we're, the reason, yeah, he didn't invent the close up. He he ripped off things from Kabiria. But so why do we say he's the first? Why does he get that credit? Because cinema is always building on what came before. So when you look at the directors, you look at Wells, you look at Capra and, and the quote from that you read at the beginning, these guys looked to movies like Intolerance. They looked to people like Griffith to build their art form. So it's the point of the film registry, right, is cultural importance yeah. and significance. One way to measure that is these guys looked to him and what he did in order to hone their craft. Without this, maybe you don't have that or you don't have it in the same way. That enough is enough to say he did it first in a way anyway you know they're because, not saying i didn't look at pastroni's cabiria to you know base how i do a war scene well you know? because somebody was gonna have to do it i mean sure. so, you know cinema has existed but it was not 
what it was until Griffith took all of these disparate elements, pretty much lifted whole cloth, and made a different package and changed the entire idea of what filming something could be, what motion pictures could be. And maybe somebody else would have did it if he didn't get to it. Maybe it would have happened in 1920 or 1922, which who knows what would have happened at that point, how things would have changed. But somebody was going to do it because they were doing it. People were taking cameras and making things, shooting things, and somebody somebody was going to do it, and he did it. And for better or worse, we're here in 2020. Uh, not as many new movies getting released this year because uh, something else from the uh, early 1900s has reared its ugly head. <laughs> We're still I mean, here. Like, we're still, we're still yeah. feeling... I mean, this kind of, like... He, Mike just said, uh, he brought up the name Capra. Mike, uh, the other Mike, fucking men- uh, used the Capra quote in the beginning. This feels like a kind of a fucking Capra movie, at least the modern-day segment. Yeah. feels like a Capra story. Uh, you, you, you feel it. I mean... And, and then you've got the religious the religious part of it with uh, the, the Christ story. That's a big fucking part of cinema. Even today, religious cinema makes a lot, weirdly, a lot of money. The Passion of the Christ, a fucking torture porn movie with Jesus Christ as your final girl, was the highest rated R-rated movie until Deadpool. Highest grossing, I should say. And the thing is, you know, you mentioned that part. I think also the undeniable moment, the Babylon sequence is a spectacle. Yeah. I mean, when you look, when you look at them climbing the walls and those ladders and the ladder getting knocked down and the building collapsing, I looked at that and immediately thought like, oh, we have not moved that much far away from this when we're watching Game of Thrones and the White Walkers storming the wall. That's the the remarkable thing about intolerance. Um, I, I, and more so to me than Birth of a Nation because I think that, I, I think setting aside, uh, the, the subject matter I think the the remarkable thing about intolerance is that if I watch Birth of a Nation, it shows its age. It's not particularly even you know even just from a visceral standpoint, it's not particularly thrilling. It it, it shows its age in a very big way. That when I watch Intolerance, I don't feel like it shows its age that same way. Like you know, there's there's an element of when you watch much older films from the early 1900s. Next season, we're going to do Great Train Robbery. You watch I was just about to and, say Great Train Robbery. Is that what you're talking yeah. about? <laughs> well, but but even before that, like even some of the, the Dixon films, when you watch those, the camera placement doesn't matter. And it's all about just like, look, we've got a camera. It's on a tripod. Uh, it's a wide shot. These people are going to do this thing. Mm-hmm. And it's all play acted in front of you. What's remarkable about Intolerance is how much, and yes, of course, we can take quibbles with things like pacing or certain storytelling elements uh, of which but there are plenty uh, for yeah. sure. But what Billy it's, it's like, it's like the, uh, whatchamacallit. It's like the quote I read at the beginning, the Frank Capra quote, which is the idea of like, when you watch intolerance, you do kind of realize, especially like I said, 1903 great train robbery to 1916. When you watch intolerance, you realize the, the language of cinema is here. Like it's, it's figured out. Mm-hmm. We are perfecting it over time. Like people are still perfecting it. But you look at this and go, oh, this is the structure of how you tell a story. This is when you're watching these the 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 Babylonian dance sequence, right? On the steps yep. during the Babylonian orgy. That's still I mean, that's uh, the way that the camera moves with the choreography. It's something we complained about um way back on our Singing in the Rain episode 
I took issue with the way that on the town basically just goes, here's a dance sequence. We're just going to set up a camera here. You guys dance in front of the camera. Decades earlier, Griffith understands how you need to make the camera part of the choreography. The battle sequences are still what you see today yeah. during you know, in Lord of the Rings or what have you. It was... I have in my it, notes. I have in my notes that parts of the the siege of Babylon, those scenes, parts of them looked like they could have been outtakes from the Battle of like Helm's Deep or the Battle of Five yeah. Armies. It, it shot the same way. Those sweeping crane shots, it, it just impressive things that I, I was like, shit. This, if if not for the janky film and the frames per second, like this could be film today. It and and and. On that point, like you said, like Tom, maybe not the biggest fan of the film, but you have to give a little props to the fact that a motherfucker gets straight up beheaded point blank on camera. I yeah. mean, there's a lot of shockingly graphic violence. Um, and, and, he was and, and, pushing yeah. it, and I, I even read that there was a elaborate and very expensive scene. Uh, I believe in the Babylon uh, story of uh, a lot of nudity. Yes, the yep. Babylon origin. Yep. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh that had to get cut out. So uh he was really uh really going for it. And Well, um, interesting, it was the studio that had those scenes filmed. They sent Joseph Henneberry, who is the assistant AD here, and said the film needs more sex and had him go out and shoot those scenes that then ultimately didn't make it into it. But even the stuff that made it into it, there was a lot of sexual innuendo that surprised me here. You know, I think of early Hollywood under like the code, you know, the more the morality code from the early studio and the like, Hayes the, Code, yeah, yeah, the Hayes Code in the 1930s and stuff. So I think of that, and and it, it took me a second. This is like 15 years earlier than that, or a little less than 15 years earlier than that, where I guess it didn't have the same morality standards, and they could have stuff in there. But I was I was a little surprised. I was taken back. You know, the the attempted rape scene, rape scene, and like the yeah. in the modern story, I was like, shit, <laughs> like they're going there. Holy shit, you know, I, I was surprised. Oh, can we curse? <laughs> yes, <Okay>. please. <laughs> I realize, I think I've He's, dropped like four F-bombs. As, as I've said on other episodes, Tom's here. What, what are we... <laughs> it's always going to be... Um, no, I mean, it's... I, I think I described I described our dynamic on the show uh, to somebody as... Imagine if it was... Uh, if if it was Johnny Carson, but his, his, uh, his sidekick, instead of being Ed McMahon, was Howard Stern. And that's kind of what Tom and I's episodes can get. Weird, it's wild it's stuff. Weird, wild stuff. It's, it's wild. I mean, you just so, said a lot of curse words there. Yeah, it's wild. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, basically, each segment of this movie is basically a promise that cinema is going to fulfill down the yeah. road. Because the Babylon stuff, you know, the big epic uh, fight scene is basically stuff they're going to keep on trying with shit like until right. like they kind of hit their climax with shit like. Ben-Hur and Lawrence of Arabia and these epics of the 50s and 60s. And then those kind of die down until we finally hit that peak again where we could finally realize it on a crazier scale with the Lord of the Rings movies. Uh, the Christ stuff, the religious epics of the 40s and 50s and the 60s. And then like this resurgence again with the uh, with, with Passion of the Christ showing that religious movies can be that. Uh, the, the modern day stuff is a social realist drama, basically. It's, it's a movie about social issues of the time. Uh, it's then the the the, the French storyline is, is we we just keep telling historical epics these right. histo- these these period pieces about kings and queens and revolutions and oh my I mean the 
this should, we, we, we keep doing it. And so this is literally in pretty much by every dish, uh, uh, every definition of the word is ground zero for like four different kinds of stories that cinema just keeps fucking doing. And, and even within the four stories, Tommy, you said before, there's only so many different stories and we just keep telling it different ways. You know, religion and the issues that Griffiths clearly had with religion play out in all four of these stories, right? You have you have the high priest of Bel being jealous of the growing prominence of Ishtar through, you know, Belshazzar, and that's why he betrays the Babylonians to Cyrus. You have the Huguenots and the Catholics and Catherine de Medici, you know, in the French story. You have the Christ story, which for me is the least successful of all of these, or least interesting anyway. And then you and then you have the Puritanism, right? The the morality police, the the Vestal Virgins of Uplift. And their high standards in and, you know, the the proto-prohibition, you know, sentimentality, which is related to religion. It's Puritanism more than anything else in the modern story. And so, yeah, these are still all themes that we see all the time in movies. It it really is so funny this came out in 1916 because if this came out like three years later when prohibition was put into effect, he 100% would have made those women in that storyline so much worse and blame yeah. them for so many problems that the it, it it is always kind of weird that people never point out that prohibition was started because of that bullshit i don't know but it's just funny like for as well much with as the writings should... on the wall though right i mean in yeah. 1915 16 the writing's already on the wall that this is a movement growing in the country yeah. in order to and... get you know amendment a constitutional amendment this this was a this is already a thing he could see the handwriting clearly and it's funny too, because you mentioned before about um, he he he's looking at like the 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 time he's in and like just leaning into that. So Birth of a Nation, he leaned into the racist shit to 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 prop up people that are like angry and whatever. He doesn't do like he re- he actually kind of doesn't do that here, which is kind of why this movie kind of fails. The other, I mean, half of the reason why it fails because he fucking spent too much goddamn money on the the theatrical roadshow, but. Right. People weren't in the mood for a movie that was like not that that was basically a pacifist movie like hey stop right. starting wars, stop fighting each other, stop killing each other because of your differences. Just be cool. People were not into that. They're like we're at a we're in the middle of a fucking war right now, buddy. Right. We don't need this shit. Enough I mean, of your hippy yeah. dippy shit. We're about to enter World War One when this movie comes out. We're like less than a year away from entering World War One, and the Lusitania has already been sunk at this point. You know, like yeah. like fucking, yeah, definitely didn't read the room as far as a country's mood. And it, it, definitely the, it, I mean, it's the the big thing about this movie is is that the, his hubris caused his own downfall because he yep. didn't read the room. He thought he could change the tenor of the room with his movie. Because, right. oh, look what I did with Birth of a Nation. People will listen to me. And I'm going to tell them right now, violence is bad. Don't be intolerant. Blah, blah, blah. And everyone's just like, no. I'm not. Yeah. No, I don't want that. Now, I do want to I do want to jump in because uh, Tom made the note about not being Birth of a Nation. And I would argue that to a much less degree than Birth of a Nation, of course. But it is not as though uh, Griffith turned off his scorn and bigotry and hatred. Because while he does not direct it toward uh, African-Americans uh, in this film, he um, hates women in this movie uh, oh, it's quite 19- a lot. It's 1916. Nobody likes women. 
But I'm saying right. like, but no, but I mean, see, here's the thing. What he's doing in this film and you see it, uh, you know, throughout history, anytime there is a feminist movement, uh, first wave, second wave, what have you, there are always these guys who are kind of, who take the same argument. It's still happening today. A uh, hundred years later, this this atrocious dismissal of of women advocating for equality by saying they're mad nobody wants to fuck them. Right? Oh yeah, that was and, that, that was like oh wow okay. <laughs> I mean, I have the quote here from one of the title cards that you're just like, it's you know, seeing youth drawn to youth. Miss Jenkins realizes the bitter fact that she is no longer a part of the younger world. That's her entire motivation. Jesus. That's how she yeah. becomes one of the Vestal, the Uplift. That's how she becomes a Vestal version of the Uplift. That's why she begins working with them is because yeah. no one wants to fuck her. You know, and he calls her. <laughs> and crazy. he calls he calls them the meddlers. You know, uh, when oh here, there's another quote. I forgot I wrote this one down. When women cease to attract men, they often turn to reform as a second choice. Like the. F- Fuck, I had man. that down too. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah, I mean, this movie. I mean, the the love story, right? The linchpin of the modern story is this love story between the dear one and the boy. That's that's what's supposed to keep you here engrossed. It starts with kind of light sexual assault, and his first line to her is, "Say, kid, you're going to be my chicken," and then he kind of holds her head and like kind of embraces her, and then basically proposes marriage because she won't have sex with him. And then he has yeah. this like light bulb moment. He's like, "Well, what if we get married? Will you let me in then?" Uh, yeah, I mean, not great for you know. It's it truly it 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 truly makes you think about you know in in Spike Lee's uh, brilliant best picture nominee Black Klansman. He has a scene where uh, David Duke is sitting watching Birth of a Nation, and I almost wonder if if I in if there's a deleted scene from uh, Mrs. America, the Hulu series, where Phyllis Schlafly is just drumming her fingers watching the meddlers try and take the baby away and going look how terrible they are these women um it's mm-hmm. it's w- truly wild um oh, so oh, i i do want to i do want to make sure we touch on the fact that he is still <laughs> attempting to maintain the status quo in this movie the inter- he's just doing it in a different way the interesting thing is that i'd say the two strongest performances in this movie the reason this movie kind of kept my interest at all especially in, in the mon story and the and the babylonian story are because of the two lead women. You know, you have, especially Mae Marsh. She, I couldn't yes. take my eyes off of her. I thought she was fantastic. I, I was in on her. And without her, without this woman doing this role, this movie becomes much more, uh, hard, much harder to watch, I think. And and I agree. I mean, like, I you mentioned Mae Marsh. I want to single her out. And and Miriam Cooper is the uh, the friendless one during yes. the same sequence. Yes, very much But so. Mae Marsh, what, what's truly remarkable to me about Mae Marsh in the modern story, because maybe we'll just focus on the modern story for a second. Maybe we'll bounce around. But And then Constance Talmadge was the other big lead for me besides, yes. in, 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 you know, in the uh, Babylonian story. But Mae Marsh, there's a moment. Look, you get used to the fact that silent movies, when you're watching silent films, the acting is going to be a lot bigger. It's going to be a lot broader because they're trying to convey a lot of emotion with no words and no dialogue. You get used to that. And in Griffith's films, as well as any others, you know, we watched uh, The Crowd earlier this season, and I love The Crowd. I think The Crowd is a masterpiece. It also has some big performance moments, because it has to. But the moment during the modern sequence when Mae Marsh is, is looking at her baby and thinking about her husband behind bars is played so low-key and subtle comparatively and you really just it's the moment that draws you in because that's some you know her her reactions and her her internal struggle 
feels like modern movie acting. It, it feels mm-hmm. like a scene that would still play like gangbusters today in a movie that otherwise is still doing the big, broad performances. I was surprised to see something so sincerely moving in that moment. There's the scene where the uplifters come and and try and take the baby, and she beats them back with the broom. And it was a great scene, fun. It was fun like a fun scene, but also kind of like you're pumping your fist, you're happy for her. But then they come back again, and she has the liquor bottle, right? And she comes in, she's yeah. like the cold, and they, they take the baby, and she kind of collapses on the floor, and her hand falls out, and she's holding like the knitted booty, and the camera kind of zooms in on just the hand and and the and the booty, and I was really touched by it. it, it not only good acting on her part and the devastation of the baby being taken from her, but where Tom mentioned before the camera tricks, the movement of the camera as it moves in there. That's a scene that you would see today. That's good filmmaking today, you know, not just for 1916. That's good filmmaking for today. So I, it had me. I yeah, and I think you know it's. We were talking about, to, to jump out in the broader thing, Tom made a great point, um, and, and quite frankly, a better point than I possibly could have made about about how each storyline branches out into an entire aspect of modern cinema. But I also think that the film as a whole, you know, is is kind of uh, the story of, of cinema today because it is the original, uh, you know, director's blank check. It is the original overly ambitious film uh, that is regarded as a flop, that is just, that is Hollywood going, hey, you made a massive hit. We're going to let you do whatever you want. Big swing. Um, go as crazy as you want. And what we often find with these movies that for directors were big blank checks that bomb is that decades later, filmmakers are still picking moments from it going, oh my God, this is amazing. This, I need to do this. I need to do that. And, and drawing from something that the public largely rejected. And, you know, Mike, you mentioned the the shot of, of her with the knit boot on the ground and people, you know, somebody would use that today. I, the same way that, look, how many filmmakers now do this uh, claim that that uh, Heaven's Gate is actually a masterpiece? And uh, all these people are like, oh, I drew this from Heaven's Gate and this from Heaven's Gate. And, you know, when you watch La La Land, he takes so much from one from the heart. Um, there are so many of these cases where it was just, it was a massive failure on release that is still influencing today and and you know you look at especially like that modern scene that modern sequence which um you know is is the heart of the movie the the the, the modern storyline it is yeah. and so much comes from that if, if so much storytelling if that. so much was borrowed for modern cinema cinema uh, from babylon for spectacle you know, like the big battle sequences that we were talking about, the Lord of the Rings, right? Uh, the, the, those kinds of sequences, the the Feast of Belshazzar, uh, just big spectacle, epic, thousands of extras. If if modern cinema is drawing from that, I think you're taking a lot of nuance and a lot of intimate moments from the modern story. Because, you know, and, and yeah, and, and I mean, Mae Marsh is just doing a lot of really authentic, good acting that some of it still stands up today. You know, the boy is kind of a dick, you know, not not a particularly likable character, very broad, uh, not not really interacting with the camera, not coming through. But she is and her performance is so. And I also want to acknowledge as much as we talk about the nuance from this and and Tom, maybe you can speak to this, too, um, because this is something that an element of modern cinema that you like a lot more than I do. The modern sequence, you know, the modern day sequence, um, in addition to building up the mafia movie uh, from what Griffith had already established in his film The Musketeers of Pig Alley. Um, the other thing with this is that 
it's easy to to think about the modern sequence in terms of just the emotion, but a thing that I forgot until I rewatched it this time, there's a fucking car chase. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And not An like awesome one. <laughs> yeah, not not like some, you know, any other time you see like cars going by, you know, like very Keystone cop like fest. No, there's a riveting car chase in well, this film. Yeah, and yeah. there's like one shot where you could clearly tell like uh, the camera's on it like uh, another car or something and they're trying to capture the car and it clearly the car is going way too fast yeah and it outruns the camera car and so they just have to cut to another angle and uh yeah no i mean it's pretty fucking cool i mean the the modern sequence is easily the best part of the movie um i think it should have just been the movie i i mean if we're talking about like a, as a package, I think the other three stories are just absolutely not relevant to the grander point he's trying to make. And like Caputo, Mike said, <laughs> um, the Jesus storyline's not engaging at all. Yeah, um, it, you could well, totally for a couple. Of, yeah, because it's just narr- It's not even narrative. It's just vignettes. I mean, he's just taking. Uh, you know, two episodes really from I mean, it, the Gospels, right? It and basically then disappears for a while, and then it comes back yeah. like, "All oh, right, Jesus is in this movie." Um, then, I mean, I just felt like I with the other three stories, I just completely disengaged with the narrative he was trying to tell, and I would keep coming back when it would cut back to the modern stuff. Um, yeah. So I was I, largely the same way, but I reengaged whenever Mountain Girl was on the screen in the, ba- the Babylon was- story. Because I was into her and in, into what she was doing well, on screen. Not because should, of her story, but her yeah. kept me engaged I, for those I should, I should say I was, in, yeah, I, she caught my engagement, even though because I was so not engaged in that story, I was kind of like, all right, what's going on again? Um, and then just the, I mean, the, the battle sequence is cool because I'm a 14-year-old boy at heart. So, yeah, violent <laughs> and grand epic scenes and all that. Um, but... It, it, you know, to, to the point that um, co-host Mike was saying about how um, this is so fucking annoying. Um, having do to I have it. to? Do I have to? Do I have to go out of my way to book a Tom as a guest now just to balance this out? Oh no! Like for a future episode, there's got to be somebody. I'm good with just Caputo. You don't even have to be Mike. Just say Caputo. That, that okay. that's good for me. Yeah. But to go with what um, co-host Mike was saying about how like you know these big grand block blockbuster blank checks that like fail and then people picked from the bones uh, over time that's i mean that's essentially like what we were talking about about how movies are about taking all these parts and trying to cram them together and then they work but then sometimes they don't work sometimes the big swings are way too big and you end up not hitting a home run you end up missing the ball completely and spinning around and landing on your ass but people can look at these big grand swings you were taking with hindsight and going, okay, I see what they were doing there, but let me do this thing instead or this thing and then pick from this other thing instead. I mean, Mike brought up La La Land and One from the Heart, but La La Land is clearly just redoing um, New York, New York and saying, okay, New York, New York was like 10 degrees from being a good movie. Let's get it there. Because New York, New York was... Marty's coked out um, blank check movie after uh, Taxi Driver and uh, you could smell the coke 
wafting from the screen. You could feel the Coke drip hitting the back of your throat. I truly love, by the way, first off, Tom, to be accurate, and I want to be accurate here when you say that, because we're talking about a film from 1916. So to go back to uh, Hollywood Babylon, uh, please don't call it cocaine. Refer to it as he does here, which is if the nouveau riche film folk got tired from the furious pays, there was always joy powder as cocaine was called in the free and easy days. Using $2 bills to snort because they were still in circulation in 1916. <laughs> I want to touch on two things at that. Um, number one, what is it, by the way, we'll have to touch on this another time, with 70s auteurs all wanting to make a musical as their big swing. Because One from the heart, New York, New York, uh, Phantom of the Paradise. It just never stopped. I mean, fuck it. Hell, Peter Bogdanovich, what, didn't he fail twice trying to make a goddamn musical? Once with, with, with fucking Burt Reynolds as your... No. I love Burt. You don't make a goddamn musical with Burt <laughs> goddamn Reynolds. They at least knew in Best Little Whorehouse to kind of just put him to the side and let Darley Parton do her thing. Um, because they all grew up with this shit. I mean, their whole yeah. thing was just redoing with a modern edge and pushing it forward like cinema is supposed to do and they're like okay let's now do musicals spielberg never made a musical per se but he dabbled with it in 1941 in temple of doom which i guess kind of uh puts him above the other guys because he never outright belly flopped trying to make a musical like those guys did actually when you think about it look marty uh made a musical and it almost killed him uh, Coppola made a musical and it destroyed his studio. Spielberg went through that whole period, never made a musical. Finally, in the year 2020, oh, he makes hurts. a musical and it kills cinema entirely by accident. No, I thought you were, I, I thought you were going for, oh, and he casts his Tony and he's a sex criminal. Yeah, yeah. Hey, <laughs> and that leads into my next point, which is you observed, guys, both of you, that the Jesus storyline is very underplayed in this film. Oh, and that I is in part because... Howard Gay, mm -hmm. an English actor who played Jesus Christ, got involved in a sex scandal involving a 14-year-old girl and was deported back to England. Because of the scandal, his name was removed from Prince of the Film, and I'm sure had something to do with how much of that footage got kept in. I mean, not to be yeah. crass, because, but isn't that kind of like the age girls got like pushed out into adulthood in 1960? No. Even then... Well, in Christ's time, then, anyway. I mean, at 14, you're almost an old maid in Christ's time. But so, so like, maybe, but, he was, maybe he was just being method, you know? So, the thing is, even Griffith uh, is accused in Kenneth Anger's book and has been accused several times of fetishizing young and underage girls. Um, it seems, however, from what you can gather, that he was not... He did have some kind of affairs with some women, but it seems like he had a real fucked up attitude on sexuality and a lot of shame around it, and a lot of weird hang-ups. Uh, seems like he was a very damaged dude. Shocking. Sh that, that's real shocking to hear. <laughs> Re really weird to hear that an American filmmaker in 1916 had some weird puritanical views on sex and was a deranged maniac. Apparently, he instructed the Gish sisters um, that to not ever actually kiss anyone on camera because it would ruin your purity and you could get diseases that way and i believe i believe it's dorothy gish when dorothy gish was on some other set and the director uh told her oh you have to kiss him she looked at the director dead in the eyes and goes we don't do that in the motion picture business it's weird very weird now kenneth anger also goes on to imply that the gish sisters were sleeping together i have no evidence to suggest that that's the case 
Karina Longworth did a whole episode on that chapter of the book and was like, I found nothing to suggest that that happened. But it does seem like he really like he really fucked them up psychologically. Uh, just to stay in the Gish sisters for a second and, and talking about uh, Griffith and women. Uh, in one of his later movies, Lillian Gish, he uh, was sent to go direct her sister in a, like a pickup shot, like a second unit pickup shot. And uh, afterwards, someone asked her in an interview, uh, you know, you've had a little taste of directing now. Would you want to do that? And she's like, no, it's too hard. Directing is a man's job. Uh, that's come yep. on, Lillian. Jesus. You have Mary Pickford already running UA at that point. You know, they had formed UA altogether. And, you know, come on, Lillian. Be a little yeah. more woke with your sisterhood. Yeah, I think I, I think that, listen, that's the sister who allegedly, uh, so the apocryphal story goes, that uh, she got married and then returned home with her bags packed the next day saying, like, I didn't know I was expected to move out when I got married. How am I? I, I need to see my mother and sister. Like, it's very, it's all fucking weird. Um, and I think that that's, I mean, look, that's kind of what draws Kenneth Anger to write Hollywood Babylon is like, look at these weird, deranged maniacs at this time. And the idea of a giant Babylonian set rotting in Hollywood, you know, of course, sums it all up. Did you read the fun fact about why that set stayed up as long as it did? Did you? Did it you... would have been too expensive to tear it down. Yeah, he was so poor, Griffith. He could not, literally, could not afford to tear down the set. Uh, but he... as as Tom noted, I, I and I want to make sure this is clear because I'm very there's certain little myths uh, that have pervaded them. Hollywood. Yeah. But certain ones that really get my goat, look, uh, you know, as as the man who shot Liberty Valance uh, notes, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. But there are certain things that really get me, uh, you know, like when when people over exaggerate and talk about how, you know, yes, It's a Wonderful Life was not the same success as some of other Capra films. But people act like when it came out, everybody tarred and feathered it. It was nominated for Best Picture. Right. Um, another one that gets me is just this idea. I get it's a simpler story to say intolerance itself was a flop but the film itself like tom did made its money back yeah what destroyed griffith was that he insisted on these overly elaborate road shows specific modeling for every theater right it, uh yeah a had to have a live had to have a live orchestra orchestration with the with the silent film viewing yeah yeah it's like it it reminds me you know i think about of course it, it didn't bankrupt him but you know, I keep thinking like, would Gemini Man have made more money <laughs> if if they only hadn't insisted like you need to put these insane high frame rate projectors in all of your theaters because it's the only way that this thing does not look like mush on screen. Right. Well, it would have made more. This this did this did kind of happen five years ago when Quentin made the Weinstein Company install seventy millimeter prints for the Hateful Eight. Uh, in a bunch of theaters around the country because uh, reading that book, uh, Mike, Taking Shape 2, about the lost Halloween sequels that never got made, they talk about how it it took them, they couldn't make any more Halloween movies after Halloween, Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 is because they didn't have any fucking money. Yeah. So, like, Inglorious Bastards made a lot of money the same year as Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. Uh, they only got half of the profits because they co-produced it. And then... They just could barely make movies, and then it's like, oh fuck, Quentin wants to make this goddamn movie in seventy, and he wants to put seventy millimeter projectors in theaters. Fuck, I guess we got to do it. And then, Hateful Eight didn't make a lot of money, and uh, yeah, before we found out Harvey Weinstein was a sexual monster and not just a bullying prick who ruined people's careers, they couldn't make movies anymore because Quentin pulled the D.W. Griffith on him. 
and and it's interesting you mentioned Quentin because I do I do keep thinking about the fact that well I I had an ex uh, and and she said have you ever seen I said have you ever seen Pulp Fiction she goes I tried watching it once it was too confusing because like it just kept jumping around <laughs> and it wasn't telling like one story and that was weird it didn't remember, have a woman rocking a cradle to help delineate but that's like, where you were going I didn't I, I I remember being so dismissive of that and then you read up on intolerance and you realize like that's what threw people yeah. yeah. The idea of it having multiple storylines, a thing that continues throughout cinema, and again, a thing that I think is, well, when you look at what people are saying positively about Pulp Fiction when it came out, when it won Con, was the idea of like, oh, wow, the fact that it's doing like all these different storylines and, and, and all and these different timelines, because, you know, movies have done other storylines naturally, but like the fact that it's different points in time jumping around, and even that thing has its, has its roots way back in 1916. Right. You know? Uh, is is so fast and and and, you know. and it's another aspect of this movie where I think sometimes it works and sometimes it's just baffling why he makes the jumps he makes. You know, th- there is some clear parallelism going on there, right? He the 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 boy gets convicted and is told he's going to die, die, die for his crime by the judge, and then they you know they cut to Jesus, you know, being told he's going to be crucified. And then in the beginning of the crucifixion story kind of thing. So there's some clear parallelism going on there and why he makes cuts are obvious. But then there are other jumps that make uh, that he, he makes a cut to. And it's uh, it's unclear why he's made the jump. You know, I think he over the three hours lost at some point why he's jumping from one to the other, you know, and which, I think which, which only hurts the movie. Which is why I maybe a big part of why I just disengaged with those other three because mm-hmm. it just it's so like yeah it's the first to be doing this shit but it is just like it's so graceless in how it's yeah. jumping between all these things so like it makes it feel like these three stories are unimportant because they are just cutting to things I'm like alright why are we here now right well and, and even the even the device of using the eternal mother rocking the cradle which is used reliably in the first half of the movie, he begins to cut so rapidly in the last 30, 40 minutes of the movie, he even abandons that device. So if you're going to have these jumps, then you have to at least be consistent. You either have, you know, Lillian Gish playing the Eternal Mother Rocket and Cradle. You either have to have that always or not have it and and teach your audience one way or the other. Because I even, and I understood what the movie was going to be before I watched it. I had read up about the, the cuts and stuff. Even I kind of got lost a couple of times. I was like, where are we and why did we jump again? You know, I blinked. I looked down to take a note. I looked up and we're in a different time period. So, And it's it's funny you say that and how we're talking about how things build on it. Because the person who took away, probably the first person who took away the lesson from this of, oh, well, if I'm going to do multiple storylines, this is how I have to cut between them. Uh, I have to have some thematic link. The person who does that is Buster Keaton right. uh, a couple years later with a movie that is essentially dunking on right. Intolerance, right. which is uh, The Three Ages, right. um, which is, you know, uh, takes place in the, uh, the Stone Age and the, uh, you know, it jumps between modern times. It's, it's, if people have not seen it, by the way, it's only an hour, so it's, uh, you know, a third of the time of Intolerance. Uh, but I highly recommend it. It's it's probably one of the better uh, Buster Keaton films, despite being one of the best Buster Keaton films, despite being uh, largely uh, forgotten. But and but, and works better when you understand it as a parody of this. Yes, yes, yes. yeah. 
Uh, by the way, Stone Age, Ancient Rome in modern times. I was blanking on the second time period for some reason. But it's also a thing of like, I guess even that, like when we kind of, we almost think of intolerance because of the way it's like, oh, it was this great failure that it kind of just fell out of the, my, you know, the, the cultural lexicon. But the fact that years later, Buster Keaton can make a movie that is lampooning it and it's, people get what it's mocking means it did stick around in the public consciousness to some degree. I think it's right. undeniable, even if it's a massive failure in, in people's minds, it sticks around as it leaves an impact. And quite frankly, I'm thinking of the other films from 1916 that I've seen uh, and the ones that I've mentioned on the show before. Um, in 1916, Charlie Chaplin makes The Rink, which is a short where he where some of the bits that he does in The Rink he ends up reusing in modern times. Uh, 1916 is also uh, the silent version of Snow White that would inspire Walt Disney when he made his Snow White. And it also has uh, a Western that I was just talking to Tom about uh, off mic that I love um, called Hell's Hinges, which is a great Western, but it's a 60-minute straightforward Western that's mostly shot with the camera on tripod. You can't help but look at Intolerance and realize like nothing looked like this. Right. Nothing at this time looked like this in any way. Even the use of the color tints, which Tom, you know, yes. hit on before, and I'm so happy you did because it, it, it just narratively it also helps keep the whole thing straight. He it, he was aware a bit anyway. He was a little bit self aware of the grandiose nature of this. Not only the length of it, but the amount of cuts and the ambition of the four stories. You know, so the idea of using the tints to 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 uh, differentiate the periods and the moods, it, really smart. I mean, a smart way to go about this. I mean, there are other better ways. Maybe you eliminate some stories and you do some more editing uh, and make the movie more manageable that way. But, you know, it was interesting that he was at least aware of it and had had a solution to it. So, It's also worth noting, uh, we haven't observed this yet, that not only is this film influential for generations, but even some of the people who worked on it. Uh, you know, two of the assistant directors to Griffith on this film are Eric von Stroheim and Todd Browning. Mm-hmm. Who are both people who would innovate cinema in their own ways? Um, it's the impact of this film, and another little trivia fact that I kind of adore: uh, it had a budget of eight point four million dollars, where it held the record for most expensive film for thirty eight years until Walt Disney's Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Well, uh, what I love is that the cut Babylonian orgy sequence cost two hundred thousand. Which was double the cost of the birth of a nation. Right. Yep. I mean, and, but but the formal accounting on the books, like the actual books accounting, though, was like three hundred eighty-six thousand dollars. Though it's just Hollywood. It was this was the birth of Hollywood math. You know, yeah. you hear it all. You hear it all the time, especially in TV shows about how studios will always report a loss so they don't have to give you know the back end to the actors. Uh, you know, shows that have run in run in uh, syndication forever, never make money. I mean, this this movie is the first first of real attempt at Hollywood math. This is, I mean, it's also the case of like move big blockbusters that cost a lot of money. Yeah, you go okay, two hundred fifty thousand. That's a lot. Two hundred fifty million. That's a lot of money. But oh look, it made a billion dollars worldwide. But then you go, all right. That also means they probably spent like three hundred billion on marketing. So right. Uh, the, the the profit margins aren't as high as uh, they would like. I mean, we fucking. I mean, um, there's probably a hundred examples of this, but like Batman for Superman made like a billion dollars, but <laughs> it cost like almost half a billion dollars. So right, 
because this fucking idiot ran up the goddamn cost with all these elaborate demands for the movie theater showing it, he fucked himself because, like Mike said, it did make money. It right. It made it a million, right? It made a million at the box office. That's it sold tickets. So I, I think we have to circle back around to the hubris of it, though, because this movie actually starts right in 1914 as just the modern story, and he's calling it the mother and the law at that time. Then yeah. he has the birth of a nation, and he gets his blank check, and and he's got his issues, you know, where he's defining intolerance essentially as people don't disagree with me, right? That's how he's defining intolerance, yeah. and so and so he adds on the other three stories, and that's where it balloons. But then in 1919, he goes and recuts the movie into two separate movies, The Fall of Babylon, which is just the Babylon story, and The Mother and the Law, where it's just a modern story, which is where it started. Had he just done that, he probably wouldn't have been, quote unquote, financially ruined. His career probably wouldn't have ended, essentially, with these movies. You know, yes, he went on and he made several more movies that were well received and did some box office but nothing like the birth of a nation or, or this movie and, and none of the renown. He should have, uh, he should have set the precedent that, uh, Warner brothers did with the Hobbit and just, uh, add, just keep making them into movies. We'll, we'll, <laughs> yeah. we'll add the box office out. I mean, there's so, I mean, there's so much like we, we, we keep every five minutes talking about a new thing that like, Oh, this is something else that's about Hollywood or Hollywood does still, but blah, blah, blah. it's the fucking hubris of this shit. Like he, nobody was around to tell him, Hey, don't do this. Right. Cut. Pull it back. Pull it back. Don't go so crazy. Maybe you don't need to get the Christ stuff in there, and then right. and the sex the sex abuse scandal happens. Okay, now you really don't need the Jesus stuff in there. That's just an extra thirty minutes. You could just cut the fuck out of this movie. But at the same time, you know, while there was nobody telling him no, I, I'm willing to bet you know what there was. There were people saying, "How are you going to top Birth of a Nation? How are you going to top it?" Yeah. Such a spectacle, such a block to how are you going to top it? And I think that when we discuss the hubris, and look, uh, the hubris is a huge part of it, and D.W. Griffith had a massive ego. I also think that what undoes a lot of these filmmakers with these grand epics and these big swings is the pressure, the constant pressure of how am I going to top what I did before? And because at the end of the day, even if you make a great movie, even now, even if you make a great movie, if it does not top what came before, people view it as underwhelming. Uh, to bring up somebody, to bring up a different uh, director with a massive ego who had mega hits and was also maybe not the best of his actors. I think about James Cameron. Huh. <laughs> and the fact, the fact that one of my favorite James Cameron movies and what I think is... One of his best movies, possibly his best movie to me, which is going to sound like heresy to some folks, is a movie that is considered kind of a misfire, which is True Lies. Yeah, I agree. People write off True Lies all the time. There is nothing wrong with True Lies. It's not a bad movie. It's not even a flawed movie. The thing is, it is not the next step of spectacle. And everything else in Cameron's career, how are you going to top Terminator? Fuck it, I go bigger with Alien. How are you going to top Aliens? I'm going to go bigger with Terminator 2. I'm going to go bigger with Titanic. I'm going to go bigger with Avatar. Everything is just the next bigger step because you've got that pressure sure. to keep building. And I think that with Griffith, with Intolerance, I think he looked at the mother in the law and had this idea of like, this is not the next birth of a nation. Gets the idea, sees Kabiria and gets the idea of like, oh my God, right. look at this. I need to do this. 
because nobody's seeing this spaghetti twirlers film anyway. Um, we're allowed hey, to oh, say that. Oh, wait, hey, I, I, can, hey. I can say it. I, I'm allowed. I got the documents. You know, I you know, I got the. I'm I'm, I'm allowed to get this guy over here. That just proves you can't make the joke because you're not a wop. If you got the papers, you're a wop. <laughs> I qualify for citizenship. Um. Anyway, uh, I think he looks. No, at you're that right. And he goes, oh. You're 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 absolutely right. Yeah. And he goes, "I'm going to take that." And then, to me, at least, if I have to draw my theory, he puts in the Christ thing and he puts in the St. Bartholomew thing, because as he notes in his pamphlet, it's almost like a dare. It's almost like, listen, if they're going to censor the Babylon sequence and say people shouldn't see this, if I only have the Babylon sequence and the mother in the law, they can censor it, and it's like, oh, it's objectionable. But if they censor it when I'm telling the story of Christ and the story of St. Bartholomew, do it. Fucking do it. How dare you? If you censor my shit, I, you know, I dare you. Censor my shit, and I will go to every church, every church across the country, and be like, they're trying to censor Jesus. And I'll whip up a frenzy because he thrives off that shit. The same way that the, you know, Cannibal Holocaust loved having protesters out in front of it. These movies thrive on that controversy, and he was driving it up. So I think that that's why that's, I, you know, my theory, and I have no evidence to support this, but if I had to determine where this comes from, it's. I can't just do the mother in the law. I have to make it bigger. Oh my god, I can do Kabiria. Oh, if I put these other things in here too, I can create a real fucking firestorm. Well, I think it also helps with the the how we just to circle back to how we started this conversation of the response to the criticism, this idea of him being so affronted that people would uh would criticize the birth of a nation, you know, and and him having this this legitimate shock at the response, at this negative response to like, how dare the NAACP criticize this, this work, this faithful historical work I have made, you know, adding in all of those things are just like, yeah, yeah. The fucking Catholics, you know, Catherine de, Medici, de Medici, you know, keeping down, oppressing the Protestants, uh, you know, oppressing brown eyes and prosper Latour, you know, fucking their love, you know, and killing them, you know, just the idea of every time he found some new historical, uh, thing he could hinge on to being like, yeah, let's add that in too. Let's build something around that. And it, it supports this idea, this, this grandiose, grandiose idea that he has of himself. And, uh, you know, and through that, this idea of love's struggle throughout the ages. Uh, this movie should have actually been called greed. Cause yeah. it seems like that's a big thing. That is actually the problem for everyone in the movie and not intolerance because, uh, yeah, money's, right. money's the problem. <laughs> Right, I mean, he's he's defining intolerance here like uh, Lannis Morissette defines irony. You know, it's you're, you're you're talking about something, but you're not using the right word. He's yeah. talking about right. He's talking about religious power, and he's talking about unbridled capitalism, uh, and and that's what his real beef is. And if he said that, I think if that's the take, I think it's a much more successful film. You know, puritanism and hypocrisy, and and the rules don't apply to the rich as they apply to everyone else. Which is why it was so fucking surprising to, like, watching this movie. I'm like, this guy made this? Because, yeah, there's still some shit with the women and, you know, he's got his religious problems and all that, you know, goddamn Catholics or whatever. But it's also like, he's hitting it shit that, like, pr progressive people are, like, telling today. Like, Jesus Christ, we got Cl Chloe Zhao is putting out a movie about the, the ravaging effects of capitalism in this country with Nomadland and... This is shit again. Cinema's still doing it. Yeah, and I, I, you just want to note though, Tom. Uh, 
he did not call his film Greed, but eight years later, one of his ADs would make a, an extremely long silent film called Greed. So it kind of all comes around at the end. What goes around comes around. So, you know, Birth of a Nation released in 1914, 15, right? Yeah. yeah about 100 years 19- later, uh, Birth of a Nation would become very relevant again. Uh, <laughs> 1916, Intolerance comes out, and uh, 100 years later, we're dealing with... Uh, the effects of uh, rampant capitalism, uh, right? Well, uh, right. Isn't isn't that the uh, that's the interesting thing here is that we're having this conversation in 2020, and you watch this movie. If we, if we were having this conversation in say like the heyday of the 50s, you know, where America starts to boom in the late 50s, early 60s, um, before it all got fucked again, people were like, I don't understand the themes of intolerance. You know, the, this, oh, this the camp- 80s. It's- Imagine trying or, to watch right. shit in the 80s when cat right. greed is good. Right, right, and right. You're right. all loaded up with joy powder. Uh, joy powder and your hair slicked back, you know, <laughs> like you just came out of the water. Uh, yeah, it, this movie wouldn't be as kind of timely feeling as it is. But you watch it now and shit, there's a lot of stuff in here where you feel like, yeah, I just heard a news story about this. I'm I'm watching this, you know, this play out in real time. And Now, we normally wrap up uh, our discussions talking about how these films fared at the Oscars. But for uh, what is essentially our second time, I believe, um, we can't do that here because the Oscars didn't exist because <laughs> uh, it's 1916. So what I'm going to do to wrap this up instead is I'm going to throw to you guys. I'll do it first and take some time to think about it. I think I want to wrap this up. There are four segments in this film. Now, Tom knows normally I'm against doing any kind of ranking on this show. But I think, you know, I'm, I'm all for let's rank the segments. So I'll go first, give it some thought, guys, and let's let's rank the the intolerance segments. Now, for me, uh, I'm probably gonna have a different take than you guys. Uh, the Babylonian sequence is my favorite. That's my favorite storyline. Then the modern sequence. Uh, then uh, the Christ story, and then the Huguenots. That's where I place it. I pass it over to you, Tom. Um, number one's modern day story. Uh, number two is, uh, Babylon, Babylonian story. Uh, number three, I guess I'll give it to Christ cause it's short and kind of just like, I could really not give a shit cause I'm like, all right, I know what this is fucking going. Uh, uh-huh. and then four <laughs> is, uh, yeah, the, the, the Frenchies fuck them. And, uh, lastly, Mike, uh, I'm going to go modern story one. I, I think may Marsh uh, together with the car chase and, and the friendless one with the scene where she shoots the gun from outside those, all those things together, just, just narrate and the narrative, I think worked the best for me. Uh, Babylon two, because the spectacle, you know, the, the battle scene, the feast scene, uh, the dance sequence, all of that stuff just felt so, you know, I, I see today, you know, where that comes from. Ah, fuck, man. I really didn't like the French or the Christ story at all. I'm going to put the French story third because I think it had more narrative cohesiveness and then the Christ story, which just made no sense to me. Mike, thank you so much uh, for joining us for this. Really, I mean, thank you for taking a chance on this film in particular. Thank you so much for... I know when we were doing your show, I said, uh, I said, I told you and Caroline, you guys are welcome by, you know, for a film. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad that this is the one you picked. And this turned out to be such a uh, a truly good, great, and and well thought out discussion, examining this from all different angles. I hope that people listening to this, if they have not checked out Intolerance, yet, you can. 
I think we all feel like you should, to, if just from a historical standpoint, if you go on our show's YouTube page, uh, we'll have it there for you to watch because it's public domain. So you can just watch it there and have a grand old time. Now, Mike, if people want to find you and find the things you're doing, let's tell them about what you're up to, where they can find you. Uh, and where they can hear more from you. Sure. Uh, so definitely go to podclubhouse.com. That's kind of our one-stop shopping for all of the podcasts we do. We we follow a lot of shows. We've got uh, a home decorating show with Beth Kushnick, who is a set decorator. She one of the shows we produce for her, uh, From Hollywood to Your Home. We do after shows for a lot of TV shows. We've got a celebrity show that we do whenever we find a celebrity willing to talk to us. So podclubhouse.com. Uh, is, is kind of our home for that popculturereview.com for more written review stuff uh, on social media we're at pod clubhouse everywhere I am at pop culture view uh, not pop culture review because that is one character too many for Twitter uh, so pop culture review for me pod clubhouse for you know what I'm doing and yeah that's that's the best way to interact with us so thanks so much uh, I'm excited I'm so glad thank you, came you for by. having I... me I appreciate you uh, letting me come and talk to about this movie so. You're welcome back for future installments, and I will uh, a little hint to folks. I'm probably going to try and reach out to your co-host soon about a about a, an upcoming film as well. So you know. Oh, I know she she's raring to go. So I think you'll you'll have a lot of fun with her. So. Oh, I, yeah, we've got something. Uh, we we've got something. You know, I don't want to say it too soon because I haven't asked yet, but we've got something. I, I'm pretty sure she'll be on board for. I love it. I love it. I love it. Thanks so much, Mike. This was an absolute blast. Uh, take care. Thank you, guys. I've mentioned this before, um, I think when we were talking about the Gone with the Wind episode, which, funny enough, uh, will be the episode that uh, is coming out this week, but... um, The week we're recording. Yes, sorry, yes, sorry, I forget how... Even though 2020 is almost over, uh, time still uh, has not fixed itself for me yet, so... I'm not as, I don't know, passionate about D.W. Griffith one way or the other. The only real connection that I have is the Birth of a Nation project that I had to do um, in college, and as I was watching this, which I mean, ultimately my opinion of it can be down to, it's technically impressive, and that's about all I can find. I mean, I mean, y'all kind of hit the nail on the head. Where if you wonder why Hollywood or film is what it is now, um, you know, this is the genesis, um, and it sucks that it's um, the product of maybe disdain. I don't know if that's maybe the right word per se, but it is the legacy. It is American legacy. Uh, it's cinema history. And I, I, I don't think it shouldn't be in the registry, but I didn't have much um, insight other than, other than that. But one thing I was thinking about when I was watching it, and as I was thinking about the way that I was doing my presentation in college, there's sort of this pushback to look at anybody's work objectively when they're so steeped in controversy. And so one of the things I hadn't thought about and wondered if maybe, Mike, you'd have um, some sort of answer based on you know research, based on just things that you've seen in the past, but if you needed to sort of get somebody to watch Birth of a Nation or D.W. Griffith movies, whatever, which one, again, maybe it's for history, maybe it's for context, th- this is the point of the show, but which of the two um, would be more important to sort of provide context for? Intolerance. I, oh wait, as in 
which would be the one I would tell people to watch or which one would need more content? Uh, which one like to watch? Like, I mean, as in like, cause I mean, I mean, would you, so you would agree that you would agree that like intolerance is a good way to sort of, I don't want to call it a palate cleanser necessarily, but it's a good way to ease your way into understanding how to approach birth. Not just that I, I regardless, I think it's truly wild that we had to watch birth of a nation so many times in film school and in history classes, whatever, and not intolerance because you learn so much more about the craft of filmmaking from intolerance. Intolerance is a much better made film, not just from a storytelling perspective, but from a technical perspective. Like I said in the episode, Birth of a Nation shows its age really badly, not just in its politics and its despicable attitudes, but just the actual craft of the filmmaking. There is maybe one moment in Birth of a Nation that I think holds up as a film, and that is the Lincoln assassination scene. I think the thing with Birth of a Nation is the first half can be engaging. The second half is an absolute fucking nightmare. It's not only hateful and bigoted and monstrous, but it's also just horribly constructed and, and, and all over the fucking place. And I think that Intolerance is, a, is, to me, it's a great film. It's an engrossing movie that I still find thrilling and visceral. There's still sequences that I look at with my eyes wide. I mean, the Babylonian dance sequence, the battles, the, the woman with the baby. There's so many moments that I'm like, fuck, how did he do that? And I think you learn a lot more from Intolerance the Birth of a Nation. And when the American Film Institute made their list of 100 greatest films of all time originally in the 90s, the Griffith film they included was Birth of a Nation. And a lot of controversy about that, for obvious reasons. And when they revised their list in the 2000s, instead of Birth of a Nation, they had Intolerance on their list. And I remember looking at that and thinking, well, did they put that there because they wanted to include a Griffith film and Intolerance is too, I mean, and Birth of a Nation is too controversial. But no, I think Intolerance is, is easily the far better film. I think that, yeah, it has the multiple storylines that may be harder to follow, but I think if you want an understanding of why D.W. Griffith matters from, a, from an artistic perspective, I think intolerance all the way. To wrap up like we usually do, uh, what films would you guys include in the registry? Remember, it must be an American film that's at least 10 years old. So I was, I was wondering about this one. I was, I was, um, this, this movie is, has so many things going on. There's so much to draw from. There's a lot of different places to pull from, but also it's not one of those movies, I think, that lends itself to Oh, well, obviously this, like from this to this, of course, of course, you know, it's certainly not a Dr. Strange love to Clockwork Orange kind of one-to-one for me. So I really had to think about it and wrestle with not just the film, but our feelings toward the filmmaker and the legacy he left behind. So I decided to take a look. I decided to take a look at other films from that year, from 1916. Like I mentioned, the Rink is in there, you know, uh, Snow White. Uh, Hell's Hinges, which we'll be covering in a future season, is from 1916. But there's another uh, film, a bunch of short films that I think should be represented, um, which is in 1916, uh, you know, we, when we think of cartoons, we think of animation, we often think of it's starting with uh, with Mickey Mouse, uh, you know, or even just with Walt Disney doing his drawings in the in the 20s. But prior to that, there was uh, a a different uh, mouse and a cat who appeared on screen. Uh, one of the most popular comic strips of the early 1900s. And in fact, 
Uh, many consider it the greatest comic strip, newspaper comic ever made, and I would agree with that, is uh, Crazy Cat by George Harriman. And Crazy Cat, which was published by Hearst, was so popular that Hearst produced a series of animated shorts. And what's fascinating about Crazy Cat's animated shorts is that while other animated films are content to kind of just be like, look, here's a funny dog doing a dance, the Crazy Cat shorts are using all kinds of different, they're breaking the fourth wall, they're messing with physics, they're being wildly postmodern, you know, characters are, are, are speaking with speech bubbles and then picking up words out of the speech bubbles, uh, things like that. And the best one of the Crazy Cat cartoon shorts to me is Crazy Cat Bugalol. Bug, I'm going to mispronounce this because it's a, not a real word. Uh, Crazy Cat often speaks in words that don't really exist. Um, bugolo- bugologist? I guess Bugologist. Uh, Crazy Cat Bugologist, which has both Crazy Cat and his rival, Ignis Mouse, speaking in a strange, uh, made-up language, um, finding bugs, trapping a bug under his hat, and all kinds of antics. The reason it was important for me, I think, to bring up Harriman, too, is the fact that D.W. Griffith sowed a legacy of hate in cinema. Uh, through Birth of a Nation, uh, just created a a a stain of prejudice on the DNA of cinema that still exists today. Meanwhile, that same year, uh, you get these crazy cat cartoons based on the work of George Harriman, who was uh, the greatest cartoonist of his day and was a man of mixed heritage from Louisiana. Uh, he grew up with a family, uh, a Creole uh family he was he was mixed race and uh that often showed up in his work uh you know the, the funny language is part of the creole you know it's his adaptation of the creole language and it, he found ways to talk about his own struggles with his mixed racial identity in his work and i think that the idea of to me responding to the necessary inclusion uh absolutely necessary inclusion of dw griffith uh, in the registry, despite his his hateful legacy, should be matched by recognition of the incredible legacy of the now somewhat more forgotten George Harriman and his characters, both in print and on film. So I think Crazy Cat Bugologist from 1916 is my pick from the registry. Let's get Crazy Cat in the National Film Registry. This one was a hard one for me. Took me a while to kind of figure out the angle to take, but then it it kind of hit me. Filmmaker who had uh, this, you know, this they made, they've had some, they've done some work, and then they make this movie that is a big hit, big coming out party. Kind of look, look at this film. This, this is a master. What, what's up with this guy? Then they come back and use that blank check to make a movie, and it is a three-hour just monster of a movie about multiple storylines jumping between them back and forth, back and forth until it takes these big stylistic swings until it gets to the end where everything is tied together. And it's uh, also about love through the ages. Uh, This time it's about how love can break you, but how it could also rebuild you. And that movie is Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia. I think it's uh it kind of just like hit me right in the fucking right between the eyes like yeah that this is very much playing in that 
intolerance game of uh, multiple storylines. It's all about love. It's not as grand jumping between time periods like intolerance, but it is about a lot of characters. It's about love and how love affects us and changes us and how it could break us, but how it could rebuild us and how uh, we may not even realize what it is we're doing because of love and all of this stuff. It's epic in its emotions, if not in scope. Arguably too long, arguably not. Paul Thomas Anderson seems to now believe that uh, he wouldn't have made it that long if he knew what he was doing like he does now. Either way, there's a lot to chew on in Magnolia. I think it's giant swing for the fences with some of the most transcendent stuff PTA has ever done. Pretty much everything PTA's done should be in the should be uh, preserved for for history because he's one of our modern masters that kind of even when he doesn't hit as hard as he can it's still one of the most interesting things you'll see also i mean gives us you know one of the best goddamn tom cruise performances uh you get the last if not one of the last jason robards performances you got philip seymour hoffman in there you got julian moore you got john c Riley. you got the great philip baker hall you got so much just greatness just packed into it it's like it learned all the lessons in, from intolerance and di- fixed all the mistakes that intolerance made and brought it into modern cinema in a way that I feel like a lot of filmmakers since have tried to make. I mean, fucking Inaritu has been trying to make Magnolia like a hundred times uh, before he decided to get Leo and Oscar by throwing him into a, into a snow pile. Um, but Magnolia is my choice. I think it's actually <laughs> uh, shockingly a one-to-one comparison. Thank you for listening, and thanks to Michael Caputo for joining us. You can follow him on Twitter at Pop Culture Review, and be sure to check out the work he's doing over at Pod Clubhouse at Pod Clubhouse or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow our co-hosts on social media as well. You can find Mike at NKOAS and Tom at Raging Bull 1990. While you're there, be sure to follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at YMO Podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps a little show like ours. If you know some friends who might like the show, tell them about it. And if you have someone you think would make a great guest for an upcoming film, tell us about it at yourmissingoutpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next time.